reform is a term that lots of people like to use when they want to take radical measures that not everybody agrees are good. You try to seize the high ground by calling it reform. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, last week we were talking about the Bible. We were getting into some of the uh, influential phrases from the Bible and some misunderstandings. Uh, there's a lot of interesting context in those. And we discussed uh, le- how LBJ interestingly used let us reason together and people understood it one way, but uh, you believe he meant it quite another. People will have to go back and listen to the previous podcast to hear what we're talking about. But there's lots and lots of others in the Bible, and we don't always understand them. They sound one way, but we don't always understand them fully when we hear them. Yeah, or they sound many different ways, depending on who's reading them. Mm-hmm. So the one I wanted to talk about next is another political one. And that's the phrase, shining city on a hill. Mm. And we've all heard this. This is uh, America is supposed to be a shining city on a hill. Sometimes the city on the hill is supposed to be the capital, which is a little odd since it's a sort of a sweaty city in a swamp. (laughs) It comes originally from the uh, Puritan pastor and and leader, John Winthrop, uh, in a sermon that he gave in 1630 called A Model of Christian Charity. And this is the uh, sermon given to the future Massachusetts Bay colonists about the town that they're about to found. That would be Boston, actually. And he is holding up an ideal of, of what a Christian community should be like. And this phrase he uses is actually a city upon a hill. And I'm going to give you the context. It's fairly long, but it's important to understand where he's coming from. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command the blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, may the Lord make it like that of New England, for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. So the title of the sermon, Model of Christian Charity, very much characterizes that passage. It's about how to live peaceably uh, in, in an ideal way. He's talking about creating a city of brotherly love. Uh, didn't turn out to be Philadelphia, but <laughs> so it, the phrase he's alluding to is biblical, mm-hmm. and that comes from Matthew five fourteen, uh, and which Jesus says to his followers, "Ye are," and I'm using the King James because that's the version that Winthrop would have read. 
Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. In the original biblical context, the shining is not there, and neither is it used in, by John Winthrop. But one can see where it might come from, because in the original, the city is on a hill because it's prominent. You can't hide it. It's up there. Everybody can see it. And the light of the world is a another thing, which is like a city set on a hill. It's only later that the light gets connected with the prominence of the hill. Mm-hmm. And, of course, cities were built on hills for defensive purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier, it, it made a lot of sense to set up your town uh, on the edge of a body of water, a river, or a lakeside, or even by the ocean, where waters were flowing into it. And you could go fishing and so on. The only reason to retreat up onto a hilltop in ancient times was so that your enemies would have a hard time breaking through the city walls, going uphill, and you had the advantage shooting down at them or throwing boiling oil or rocks or whatever you had at hand. The most famous example being the Italian hill towns, which were often at war with each other and all built perched up on the on the tops of peaks. Well, where does that shining city come from? Yeah, and there's the passage from Matthew, which goes exactly... Uh, ye are the light of the world, a city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. So the light is actually coming from within the person, right? according right. to Matthew. Yes, not the city that's shining. Yeah. The, this speech by John Winthrop was not all that paid attention to over most of America's history. Certain people, scholars, would have known it. But it wasn't uh, uh, that phrase, city on a hill, was not used a lot until we get to John F. Kennedy in a 1961 speech just before he assumed the presidency. And he was uh, inspired by Winthrop and cites him specifically. I have been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates on the flagship Arbella 331 years ago, as they too faced the task of building a new government on a perilous frontier. And remember that John F. Kennedy used the theme of the new frontier. So he's, he's very much linking it to that tradition. We must always consider, he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Today, the eyes of all people are truly upon us and our governments in every branch, at every level, national, state and local must be a city upon a hill constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. For we are setting out upon a voyage in 1961 no less hazardous than that undertaken by the Arbella in 1630. We are committing ourselves to tasks of statecraft no less awesome than that of governing the Massachusetts Bay Colony, beset as it was by terror without and disorder within. History will not judge our endeavors, and a government cannot be selected merely on the basis of color or creed or even party affiliation. Neither will competence and loyalty and stature, while essential to the utmost, suffice in times such as these. For of those to whom much is given, much is required. Mm-hmm. That's a very typical Kennedy-esque speech. Yes. One thing to notice is that he sort of subtracts the specifically religious message from mm-hmm. the speech. Um, there's no mention of, of God and uh, being pious and, and all the rest of it. And, of course, he puts in the foreground the idea of tolerance, especially color, creed, and party affiliation. He's calling upon unity, uh, not just to a small community of 
people who are settling together, who are already united in their beliefs, but people who are quite divided in many ways, and he's seeking uh, to divide them together. Uh, it's so interesting that he also mentions the various levels of government. Uh, yes. It's usually the city on the hill thing is thought to be a, a federal mm -hmm. responsibility. It's the whole United States, and he's saying, well, all of our governments need to live up to standards of, of excellence, and uh, you know, that would include uh, you southern governments down there who are still practicing discrimination, although civil rights was not uh, a main concern of Kennedy's at first. And, and something that uh, was something I, I know that he cared about, but was not a top priority for him. And it's still a city upon a hill. Kennedy's use of it made a, a, a difference. But the one that really brought it in the modern discourse was Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. 1984, when he made his nomination acceptance speech, he's the one that connects Shining. And this is, goes with, uh, well, movie star. You know, this is a guy who thinks, thinks of things visually and, uh, and right away you can see it's, it's very much a movie kind of statement. We raised a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. We proclaimed a dream of an America that would be a shining city on a hill. Mm -hmm. And that, that wording is what's stuck. It's mm -hmm. no upon, it's on. Well, he doesn't say on. It's just a shining city. Yeah, shining city on a hill. He says it's no longer upon, it's on, and it's shining city now. And city in all of these seems to be used metaphorically. Nobody's talking about an actual real city on a real hill. It's, right. It's, it's like, always got to do with the whole uh, the whole country, right? Right. Yeah. As I suggested earlier, you know, it wouldn't really apply to Washington, D.C. So just before he was elected, he gave another speech and noting Looking back at his earlier uses of this phrase, I have quoted John Winthrop's words more than once on the campaign trail this year, for I believe that Americans in 1980 are every bit as committed to that vision of a shining city on a hill as were those long-ago settlers. These visitors to that city on the Potomac do not come as white or black, red or yellow. They are not Jews or Christians, conservatives or liberals, or Democrats or Republicans. They are Americans awed by what has gone before, proud of what for them is still a shining city on a hill. Now, what's interesting about that is that he's picking up uh, Kennedy's own usage by emphasizing tolerance, racial tolerance, religious tolerance, political tolerance. He uses the same um, three, the same order he uses it. Uh, it's very striking. And you could see that as as Reagan trying to pull everybody together. I would say, however, that Reagan was one of our most divisive presidents, and he was very aware that a lot of people were fiercely opposed to him, especially the young anti-war people who came out of that movement and, and African-Americans, a lot of people. And it was very much in his interest to want to unite the nation, but uh, things that he did and said very often proved to be highly divisive. And by saying uh, a truly united nation is a city on a hill, a shining city on a hill, um, he's holding up a standard that very much would advantage him were it to become true. Mm -hmm. In his farewell speech to the nation, as he left the presidency, he said, I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, 
windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it, and see it still. Now, that's quite a transformation, because now he's got two main causes here. Uh, harmony and peace, yes, that's what he was talking about before. Free ports. And, of course, people tend to forget, I think, that Republicans at one time were free traders. Um, and what they call the establishment Republicans still are. These big international trade treaties that get so much discussion these days were very much at the heart of Republican ideology, although Clinton uh, moved over in their direction very famously and helped to establish the, the current era of negotiating such free trade treaties. Uh, but Trump is anti-free trade, and so his uh, ideology has very much split the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And it, you tend to get now the most uh, heated opposition to free trade from the left, from the uh, Bernie Sanders group, which is pressuring Clinton to move more in their direction. So it's gotten very, I won't say, well, I think muddled in the in the imagination, but it's just got complexified. So it's a good reminder that uh, free trade used to be a core position of the Republican Party. And then the other one, of course, is immigration. And he's saying, you know, you should have doors in those walls and, and let all kinds of people in. That, too, has been at times a Republican position, but um, not usually associated with, with contemporary Republicans who have been about restricting immigration, both illegal and other kinds in some cases. So we're hearing a lot about those causes. Reagan often surprises people by what he actually said. It wasn't always consistent and it didn't always make sense. But but there is there is an element here in, in Reagan, um, in Reagan's language of he used such exalted terms that it made it. It makes it sound like you could not possibly be opposed to this, yes. could you? <laughs> right. If you and it reminds me a little bit of George W. Bush. If if you're not with us, you're with the terrorists. Yeah. Uh, you know this oversimplification of everything needs to be harmonious, and if you. And everybody needs to be happy. And if you have any kind of complaint or gripe or something like that, there must be something wrong with you because we're a shining city on a hill. Don't you see it? Don't you want to be part yeah. of this? I seriously doubt that the authors of the Bible, for instance, ever imagined that uh, doing away with tariffs was an important <laughs> cause to be fought for. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, the most recent and current president, Obama, has also used the phrase and here's uh, one of his speeches um, he was speaking to the University of Massachusetts at Boston it was right here in the waters around us where the American experiment began as the earliest settlers arrived on the shores of Boston and Salem and Plymouth they dreamed of building a city upon a hill he goes back to a pond and the world watched waiting to see if this improbable idea called America would succeed. More than half of you represent the very first member of your family to ever attend college. In the most diverse university in all of New England, I look out at a sea of faces that are African American and Hispanic American and Asian American and Arab American. 
I see students that have come here from over 100 different countries, believing like those first settlers that they too could find a home in this city on a hill, that they too could find success in this unlikeliest of places. So what's happened in Obama's reading, now it has to do with diversity and far more diversity than the earlier speakers would have thought by having uh, Asian Americans and Arab Americans included. And it's been almost entirely divested of its religious imagery. I'm I'm struck in that one. This is a little bit off topic, but he gets to the end and he says uh, that they too could find success in this unlikeliest of places. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that anybody who's uh, who's ever read uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel uh, would ever find the landscape and the positioning of the United States to be an unlikely place for success. <laughs> it seems to have a whole lot going on. Well, I on. wonder if he was thinking of, I think, he, I wonder if he was thinking about Boston in particular. <laughs> well, yeah, that might have been. <laughs> a good harbor there, though. Yeah. Well, the, 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 hearing you read these speeches of the presidents, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm hearing, I, I can hear you read them, but as you read them, I'm also... Uh, running through my head, I'm hearing that Massachusetts accent in in uh, Kennedy, and I'm listening to Reagan's voice as you read those words, and I'm hearing Obama uh, with his speech patterns as you, and I, they all uh, fit their personalities as a personal take on on the uh, the, the original uh, the original text that they're quoting, which of course goes back to the Bible and uh, that passage from Matthew. The the next one also has a political context to it, so it belongs with these others. Um, and this is the phrase, the poor you have with you always, which occurs twice in Mark 14, 7, which is probably where it first was written down, and Matthew 26, 11. Um, I won't go into the details, but um, most... Are they generally translated and presented with a identical wording, or...? Um, in that particular phrase. Yeah, the poor you um, have with you always. Okay. Yeah, and modern scholars who are not uh, fundamentalists um, generally agree that Mark is the first of the Gospels and that when Matthew and Luke cite parallel passages, they're, they're essentially quoting Mark mm -hmm. and then adding new material of their own, taking out some of Mark's and so on. So here, the original context of this is that um, here's the original context while Jesus was in Bethany, sitting at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman arrived with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made from pure nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Irritated, some who were there asked one another, why was the perfume wasted like this? This perfume could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the destitute, so they got extremely angry with her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me because you'll always have the destitute with you and can help them whenever you want, but you won't always have me. She has done what she could. She poured perfume on my body in preparation for my burial. I tell all of you with certainty, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told as a memorial to her. There's a lot of interesting things about 
this story. Um, one of them is that it has traditionally been taken as Jesus prophesying his own death. Uh, and Mark has a lot to say about that. There is this notion that the early church had that Jesus was not killed um, in an, an unsuspecting manner that uh, he knew about his impending death and prophecy. Uh, for, of course, for Christians, this was an important belief because if it was uh, Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah in Jewish tradition says the Jews, the Messiah is immortal. The Messiah does not die in, in Jewish belief. He, the way you could tell somebody's not the Messiah is that he died. So for Christians to make Jesus the Messiah took a radical reinterpretation of Jewish tradition to an extreme degree. There were a lot of Jews then and now who don't even believe in life after death. So it was uh, it was something that was uh, represented in a fundamental upheaval of their beliefs. A lot of modern scholars would argue that this story is probably entirely apocryphal, uh, that there may have been an incident uh, with the perfume and so on, but the connection with burial and so on is probably something that evolved in the early church and in the uh, culture to say, well, you know, remember that time when that, that happened? That was actually had a significance to it. It wasn't just this very devout woman trying to honor Jesus. It was it was uh, actually a foretelling. And he understood it. He knew it. He voluntarily undertook the sacrifice for us. So that is one way of understanding the passage. But what happened and continues to happen sometimes is that certain people who are against government anti-poverty measures and people who generally oppose the notion of economic equality being an ideal, especially opposing socialists, uh, will sometimes quote, the poor you have with you always, as if Jesus were saying, I am making a prophecy now. There will never not be poor people. Mm. And to assume that you could create a world without poor people is against the Bible. And therefore, inequality is an important um, aspect of the world as God has created it. And it's interfering with God's plan to try to help poor people up. It's a very mean-spirited kind of attitude in the opinion of a lot of us. And if you look at the surrounding passages where Jesus talks about, you know, that you have plenty of time to, to help the poor and it's something you should do. And there are lots and lots of passages in both the Jewish scriptures. Uh, that is what Christians call the Old Testament and in the teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels um, against riches, against the wealthy and in favor of the poor and in favor of charity examples of giving and sharing and so on being very, very high priorities. Um, this is something that uh, causes great divisions, of course, and the, the, the idea of um, there are certain people who say, yes, private charity is good. Of course, we should give to the poor, but government charity, collective charity is evil. And, and you get also those who say it just uh, ruins the motivation of people if they're poor to, to give them charity. Even welfare reform under Clinton, as it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, reform is a term that lots of people like to use when they want to take radical measures that not everybody agrees are good. You try to seize the high ground by calling it reform. Yes. <laughs> so if you want to prevent people from suing companies that put poisons in their products, you call it litigation reform. 
<laughs> so on. Yes, you're right. What happened under Clinton was this perception that uh, a lot of people were being ruined by their dependency on welfare. And so they they were having this, this view. So it's a pretty common widespread view, but there's nothing in the Bible to justify that point of view. So this is one of those passages, I would say, gets abused pretty egregiously. Well, if you look at the story... Yes. Their complaint is, rather than rubbing it all over his head, let's sell this stuff and then we'll give the money to the poor. And, and Jesus' reaction is, no, uh, this is an appropriate use for this perfume. And so um, uh, you could see, well, kind of a selfish, let's indulge ourselves and the poor can just, you know, you can take care of the poor whenever and however you can, you know, <laughs> but... but um, uh, yeah, that's really, really isn't the point. It's really kind of a, a, a sophisticated take, too, on, um, yes, helping the poor is important. The, that is mentioned in this in this story. But uh, there's also a, a place for using the things that we have for appropriate use. And uh, in this case, she was using the perfume and... And Jesus deemed it as this is a, this is a, this is what this is why we have this perfume is for these this ceremonial anointment and let's let's not uh, obscure that that that's a, a a need that we have too. I suppose it could be a justification for aftershave. <laughs> yes, every penny you spend on aftershave could could have been given to the poor, but you know you did some good too, slapping it on your face. It's all right for men to smell nice. Yes. Okay. I think that wraps it up for the political part of this discussion. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah. Uh, well, thanks again, Paul. And I, I want to talk more about some of these uh, other phrases in the Bible next time. All right. Talk to you then. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.